I want you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 11, where we're going to begin in a moment. Remember that Paul is writing this letter to his protege, Timothy, whom he left at Ephesus, probably in the early part of 63, while he, Paul, headed up to Macedonia. Uh, Timothy was supposed to be functioning as an evangelist, helping the church get stronger, make sure that the leadership was strong, both the spiritual leaders and the leaders of the logistics, uh, the deacons and the deaconesses. And Paul wants Timothy to understand that he has a special role to play here. Uh, now, Timothy is probably only in his mid-30s, I would guess. Um, this is, like I said, probably about 63. And Paul picked Timothy up as an associate to his ministry uh, work on his second missionary journey right around 48, uh, when Paul was passing through Lister, which is where Timothy is from. Now, if Timothy was right around, let's just put an easy number on it, right around 20 at the time, then that means it's been about 15 years and he's about 35. Uh, and he's been traveling with Paul and learning from Paul all this time. And it's now his opportunity to be the preacher and teacher, the evangelist that Paul used to be to him. And so let's read now that sort of encouragement that you hear from a, a more experienced preacher to the younger preacher. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, what's he talking about? Everything we were talking about yesterday. Uh, remember, he was talking about some troublemakers, those that wanted to stir the pot, those that wanted to think that godliness, put that in air quotes, uh, religiosity, uh, is a means of great gain. Uh, that is physical gain, material gain. Uh, these, are, these are bad preachers. These are false spiritual leaders who think that they can um, manipulate people in such a way that they will end up getting the cash. Uh, we know about these hucksters. We know about these troublemakers. We still see them today. They have radio programs. They have TV programs where they spend very little bit of time talking about um, Bible sort of things, and they very often are twisting the Scripture when they do that. Uh, but they have an awful lot of, send me money, send me this, send me that, uh, get on my mailing list, do this, do that. And uh, we all, as Christians, I think, are appalled when we see people like that uh, taking advantage of um, uh, Christians that uh, are maybe not as mature as they need to be or a little bit on the naive side. Uh, and so they need to be protected. Uh, so that's why we need to be very careful in who we put in teaching and preaching positions uh, and why they need to be monitored on a regular basis and dealt with if they go sideways. So here's Paul 
telling Timothy, you need to, O man of God, flee all that stuff, that greediness. Pursue righteousness, which is doing the right thing according to God's standard. Godliness, which is the idea of being like God. Remember God's command uh, from the Old Testament time was be holy, meaning do things the right way, as I am holy. Faith, that needs to be pursued as well. Uh, Faith is the underpinning of things hoped for. It's the convicting evidence of things we can't see. So preachers need to be pursuing that information. Uh, And where do you get it? The Word of God. Need to be pursuing love, he says, which uh, this is uh, the love uh, uh, that is demonstrated by God. Uh, This is that agape type of love uh, that sacrifices for the benefit of the other person. It does whatever is necessary uh, to help the other person out regardless of the cost. And so we preachers, we spiritual leaders, that's what we have to pursue. And steadfastness, that's sticking with it. And gentleness, uh, this is the sense of... um, of, of being meek. That's the old-fashioned word for this, wor- for this particular word. And meek is not weak. I, I often point out at this juncture that there are places in ancient Greek literature that they describe war horses as meek. And what they mean by that is the power is under control of the master of the horse. And so we are meek in the sense that we are under control. Our power is under control of God. He's the one that calls the shots and tells us what to do, and we submit to that. Uh, So let's go over the list again real quick. These are what preachers should be pursuing, and actually all Christians pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Um, Agonize the great agony is is what he actually says in the Greek language. Uh, And it's the idea we got to put the effort into it. We got to get down and get involved in the contest, uh, which is going to bring faith into other people's lives. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, in the Gospel of John, we are told that believing in Jesus is eternal life. And so that was a a New Testament principle understood amongst uh, the early preachers of the gospel. So here is Paul telling a preacher, you have got to take hold of Jesus Christ and hang on to him. You were called to him as your Savior, as your Lord. And you made the good confession about him in front of people. 
Now, I don't know how formalized things were in the first century church, uh, but through the years uh, and into the present era, we have formalized uh, in different ways this verbalization of faith. And uh, I don't know how you do it in your congregation, uh, but uh, in, in the churches that I've always been associated with, it's patterned after the words of the Apostle Peter to Jesus up at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and that is, uh, when you make your decision to be a follower of Jesus, you say something along the lines of, and, and you might actually be prompted, that's how I often do it, uh, but the scripture is used as the prompt, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we'll often uh, also prompt, and I want him as my Savior. You know, that's for when you first make the choice. And my Lord, and that's an ongoing commitment. And so this is called a confession. It's a verbalization of what's inside of us, what we believe. And it's important to the Christian lifestyle, I think. Uh, it's um, something that we do with weddings. I mean, we have people repeat vows of commitment to one another uh, because we want them to verbalize it in front of witnesses. That's why marriage uh, ceremonies are so important is because it's not just one guy uh, telling a girl, you know, I want to be married to you. No, it's them in front of God and a company of witnesses saying, I promise to do this. I'm going to love you. I'm going to respect you. I'm going to be faithful only to you until death does us part. And so people hear that, and it's an important anchor point in the marriage life. And so that's the same with becoming a Christian. Now, immersion, baptism, is certainly part of that. It's a ceremony that um, symbolizes dying with Christ and living again with him. It symbolizes uh, washing away of sin and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, uh, it is a, a new birth ceremony. It's all of that. But confession also needs to be something that happens. Uh, and I think it goes all the way back to the first century, uh, as described right here. So Timothy made that good confession in front of people about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, his Savior, his Lord. And Paul anchors him back to that again. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God. And so he's now formulating uh, kind of a putting you under oath sort of thing. Uh, not exactly putting him under oath, but saying, I'm going to tell you right now with God watching both of us. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. God is the life giver. Uh, everything that exists came into existence because of his creative act. And in the presence of Christ Jesus, 
So God the Father is in mind here, and so is God the Son, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So Timothy made a good confession. Jesus made a good confession. And all we have to do is go back and read about Pilate interviewing Jesus, particularly in the John Gospel, I think. Uh, And he says, so, are you a king? And Jesus says, well, are you saying that on your own? Or are you being told that by somebody else? And Pilate's like, do I look like a Jew? It was your own people, your own leadership that turned you over to me. And Jesus' response was, yes, I was born into this world to be a king. But my kingdom is not of this particular world. Uh, However, those that love the truth will pay attention to what I have to say. Uh, And Pilate had also said, so you are a king. And Jesus says, exactly as you say, I am a king. And everyone that listens or wants the truth are going to listen to me. And that's when Pilate said, well, what's truth? Uh, So Jesus' confession was, Basically, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you need me as your Savior and your Lord. So Paul puts all that in a nice little bundle as a reminder to Timothy uh, for his preaching responsibilities. Verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, do your job. Be a Christian. That's his first job. All of us have this responsibility to keep ourselves unspotted, unstained from the sin of this world because we've repented of that. We've come out of that, and we're supposed to stay free of that until Jesus comes back. So, until we die and get called into his presence or until he shows up in the sky And we go into his presence. We stay clean. Verse 15. Which he will display at the proper time. That's his second coming. He will split the sky over the Middle East as promised. But that'll be on his schedule, not ours. And we are responsible for just being always ready. And and the reality is, something I already hinted at, Every last one of us need to be ready to meet Jesus at a moment's notice, either by our death or by his coming. In both cases, the advice of Paul to Timothy is, you need to stay focused. Verse 15 continues, he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And we love that title, right? Uh, We see it in the book of Revelation, since we're thinking about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, There in Revelation chapter number 19, where Jesus appears in the sky over Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives, he's riding on a flying white horse. And all of us who are the redeemed are on our own flying white horses behind him as he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that imagery, 
that that thought of his return should keep us centered on doing the right thing in our lives. Verse 16, who alone has immortality. Now, this needs to be fine-tuned here. All of us will live forever. We will be immortal. We will become immortal. But we have not always been immortal. Uh, We were born into bodies that were impacted by the curse that brings physical death. Only God has always been immortal. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. He alone has that standard of immortality. So that's what Paul is getting at here. Who dwells in unapproachable light. The best story, I think, that illustrates that is that when Moses begged God, show me your glory, and God's response was, no one can see me in my glory and live. So he's, he's unapproachable by sinful people or mortal people in his reality. Uh, John talks about it in the beginning of his gospel. No one has ever seen God, not in his reality, not since Adam and Eve gave up that right by their sin. So God dwells in unapproachable glory, unapproachable light because of sin choices that have been made by human beings, Uh, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So that's the echo of of John chapter 1. To him be honor and eternal dominion. So that's a that's a reality. He already has honor. He already has eternal dominion, but it's a responsibility for us to extend that. Uh, and so Paul is just recentering Timothy on what matters here. Uh, you, Timothy, need to stay on track. Don't get taken off uh, your focal point of being an evangelist to the people there at Ephesus. Amen. Jewish way of ending any type of statement of fact. Uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word. Amen means truth. Now, back to the topic of rich people. And the danger is that if you are rich, you might get to feeling self-sufficient and might get to thinking you don't really need God. All you need is more wealth, more riches to keep yourself um, supported. And so Paul already warned Timothy that people who want to get rich, get only focused on that, uh, end up hurting themselves. So now he says, this is what you need to be telling those rich people that already are there. They already have more than enough. And really, that's how you should think about rich. Rich means more than enough. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That is, uh, not just simply feeling self-sufficient, but being kind of mean about it. 
you know, and uh, projecting this image of you're not as good as me because I am rich. So Paul says, tell those rich people not to pull that sort of attitude, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, uh, which that is Old Testament teaching right there, uh, that everything is uncertain, including riches. Uh, they can disappear just like that. Uh, we have examples of that in the Old Testament. Job, uh, you know, he had riches one day and poverty the next, and it was tough. So Paul says, you need to tell those rich people to not be putting all their eggs in that basket of being rich. Uh, but they need to put their trust on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I suspect that the Apostle Paul might have been already reading from the letter of James. You know, that was written several decades before this and was no doubt circulating in uh, the church. And so uh, there's a lot of focus in there about the idea that rich people uh, need to uh, depend on God, not upon them, their wealth. Uh, and then also uh, the Gospel of Matthew is no doubt floating around for a couple of decades by now. And uh, it has the Sermon on the Mount and uh, has warnings, you know, that wealth and riches are not where you should put your trust. You need to put your trust in God. So Paul is just, he's restating, he's just reemphasizing a scriptural teaching uh, that these people need to be aware of. He wants Timothy to pass it on. Verse number 18, they are to do good, so this is what they should be doing, with their wealth. They are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So if they have more than enough, then they have enough to share. And they need to do it in the name of God. And this is the way Jesus put it in his Sermon on the Mount. They need to treasure up things in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. Uh, true wealth is accumulated in relationship. Uh, our relationship with God, other people's relationship with God, and our relationship with those people. So rich people, do good works. Use your wealth well. Verse number 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. True life comes from relationship with God and relationship with others, uh, both those that have relationship with God already and those that need relationship with God already. Verse number 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Uh, now, that deposit is salvation. It is the Holy Spirit indwelling him. It is his giftedness as an evangelist, as a worker in the word of God, as someone that is preaching and teaching. Uh, these are all things 
that have been poured into Timothy by, by God, by God's Holy Spirit, by the work of the Apostle Paul and others. You remember that Timothy um, is uh, the, the kid that was poured into by grandma and mom uh, with the word of God from his, his youth, from his toddlerhood. Uh, so all of that has been invested in him. And so all of you preachers out there, just like I am a preacher here, we have been poured into, and we need to use that deposit well. Uh, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And that's definitely some air quotes right there. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Uh, so a lot of people do a lot of talking, yak, 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 yak. Uh, and sometimes they're kind of crude and rude about it. Uh, and uh, they'll sometimes contradict uh, the scripture, just come right out and say, uh, the Bible's just a bunch of myths. It's just a bunch of things reworked from other religions that existed before it. Uh, and uh, these people projecting this stuff uh, will uh, present themselves as speakers of the truth. They've studied knowledge. They've soaked it up. Uh, there may be a little bit of a critique here of something that pops up in the church later uh, in a more formal fashion, and that's Gnosticism, which was a twisting of the truth of the gospel by overlaying it with all sorts of human philosophy. And uh, I have no doubt that it was already uh, starting to burble up uh, in all the different places where the, uh, the gospel had gone uh, by this time. And so Paul says, don't let any of that stuff uh, get into the mix of where you're teaching, because it's happened before, and uh, these guys that are professing that sort of stuff, they're swerving to the side. They're off track. They are lost and worse, they're trying to get other people lost as well. There's nothing worse than someone who thinks they know the directions, but they don't. And yet they still insist to be giving those directions to people that need to know uh, how to find a place. Well, we finish up with uh, the way that we finish up all Paul's letters, and that is grace be to you. That is the unmerited favor that is available through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's available to anyone and everyone. So I say to you, grace be with you. See you next time we get into the Word.